I know uh, most of our worship team have already walked to their seats, but we need to give them and our AV team a round of applause. Uh, Jackson, I'd appreciate if you could have my shirt back to me uh, next week. Um, and I have to point out one other thing before we dismiss the kids, but uh, we have a men's Bible study that meets every other week, and we get an email uh, basically sent so you could respond back to say, yes, I'm, I can make it or I can't make it. And the best excuse I've ever uh, received for missing Bible study was Thad sent back. He goes, I'm not going to be able to make it. I'm on a bike ride with friends in Ethiopia. Oh, that sounds pretty awesome, man. So, uh, but Thad, thank you for, for sharing and leading us in that moment of worship of our tithes and offerings. Um, kids, you are getting ready to go down to your small group activities, and uh, you should know that the things that we are going to be talking about over the next three weeks are going to be the same things that you are talking about uh, in your classes with your friends. And Miss Jan has put together some really incredible stuff specifically for you. Some things that actually might wind up coming back and informing uh, your parents here for us in worship. So you guys are now dismissed. Micah alluded to it as he um, kicked off our time uh, in worship this morning, and he is right that we try to uh, put a lot of time and energy into um, uh, constructing and, and forming services that have a holistic theme, and just so appreciative of Micah. And we are in this new three-week sermon series, uh, Joining God's Work and Offer God Won't Let Us Refuse. It sounds like a line from The Godfather, right? Um, and it's a character study on the life of Jonah. Uh, this, this series was not birthed from Drew. Drew uh, puts together most of our series, but our missions team, there is a group of about six or seven of us that meet probably every other month, and from that group was a desire to create uh, an emphasis season wrapped around a sermon series that would allow us to engage uh, these uh, themes of mission. Uh, John Chambliss, who chairs that committee, uh, is trying to get us on the committee to refer to it as the, the Moss Team, Mission, Outreach, and Service. And so those are going to be the three themes over the next three weeks that we cover. Uh, today we'll, we'll take a look at mission or what a missional life looks like, the following week, outreach, and uh, then service. And just to kind of give you an idea to kind of break down those three terms in very simple language, when we talk about mission, we see this as uh, taking a look at kind of our holistic life, uh, uh, developing lives that are missional. It's kind of connecting to our calling, where we see God's purposes connecting with the things that uh, where we are passionate and trying to live in such a way that in the way is modeled to us in mind, spirit, and body by Jesus. When we talk about outreach, this is about evangelism. And evangelism oftentimes can have this kind of negative connotation. We can, we can picture the angry guy on the street corner uh, at the whatever sporting event doing the flip or fry, repent, you're going to hell. That's not what we mean when we use the language of evangelism, but it is sh <clears throat> excuse me, sharing with others 
about the person of Jesus and how Jesus has had an impact in our lives. It is saying, Jesus has met me in this way, and I want to share that with you in a meaningful way. It is then inviting people to join and participate in the community of faith that that you experience and find meaningful, and then welcoming them with radical hospitality when they choose uh, to receive your invitation. And when we talk about service, this often is about specific acts uh, that are motivated by love, care, compassion, and empathy for others, often those for need, often for those who find themselves uh, living on the margin, those who are poor, sick, those who are looked over, often abused and forgotten. Well, our scripture this morning is going to paint a picture of what not to do when you receive an invitation or a prompting from God. Uh, And it's going to take a look at what it looks like when we reject this invitation to live on purpose and on mission with God. And so you have it there in your uh, worship uh, bulletin, and the the verses will be on the screen behind me as well. I just will point out, for those of you who like things to be perfectly systematic, that I decided that I would uh, stop the passage. um, There's two passages, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and then chapter 4, verses 4 through 10 in your bulletin. um, But I'm going to stop at chapter 4, so I don't want any angry emails Here we go. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amatai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. This is the invitation. God is saying, Jonah, go tell the Ninevites about me. My frustration with the way they're living, but ultimately my love that I have to offer them. Verse 3 says this, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So you see the problem that is arising here? Mike alluded to it, that Jonah hates with a passion the Ninevites, and he wants nothing to do with them. So he runs away. He buys a ticket on a boat and sails in the opposite direction to say, I will sail away so far that there's no way I will have to live out, live into the instruction, the invitation that God has provided for me. Well, I'm getting ready to jump to chapter four because that's what I was instructed to do. Because apparently, Drew wants to preach everything in the middle. All the good, fun, interesting stuff. So I'll leave that to him the following couple weeks. But I do think it's appropriate, if you're not familiar with the story, just to give you a a very brief summary. So that when I do jump ahead here in a moment to chapter 4, you're going to have at least a little bit of context. And what I would encourage you to do over the course of this next week, maybe you would even do this for the, uh, the, the next couple, three weeks, that you would spend some time in this book, the book of Jonah, the Old Testament. So as we said, Jonah gets on the boat because he's run away from, running away from God and he sails away to avoid sharing with the Ninevites. And then what happens, here's where I'm filling in the, the middle for you, a big storm comes upon this ship out in the open sea. 
And Jonah finally realizes that the storm is there because he is running from God. And for some reason, he, he decides that the best course of action is to convince the crew to pick him up and throw him into the open sea, into the storm, surely thinking that it was going to be it for him, but that maybe at least the punishment that he deserved wouldn't be visited upon the crew that was helping him escape. A short time later, he is swallowed not by a big whale, but by a big fish, to be scripturally accurate, where I guess he has a change of heart and decides going to the Ninevites might not be as bad of an idea as he imagined. And so now here we pick up chapter 4, after he has gone to the Ninevites, he's shared this message of repentance with the Ninevites, and they have responded extremely positively. Verse 4, Jonah's response to God after all this great stuff has happened in Nineveh. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it was better for me to die than to live. You picking up on that? God has done all this great stuff in the lives of the Ninevites, and Jonah is not very happy. In fact, he is, it says, the scripture says that he is angry with God for being loving and compassionate and forgiving. And he's having a pity party and he's complaining. It's as if he's saying, I knew you would forgive these no good, terrible people just like you forgave me and my people. It's just not fair. It's just not right. And the irony is so thick, so deep. But I'll ask you, have you ever tried running from God? Have you ever found yourself in a season of complaining? I'm most certain that all of us have. And I bet that there are some here this morning who are currently trying to run from God. You've got your eyes set on a boat that you're going to book passage on to get out of here. And I'm sure you have found reasons to complain Reasons connected to your faith, reasons connected to, to God in ways where you sense God leading you or doing something in your life or in, in the lives of someone else that you simply, you just don't like. And so you choose to run from it or complain about it. I was on a trip to Mexico, uh, a mission trip of sorts, where eventually we would get, go across the border from San Diego into Tijuana. And uh, the day before, I went with a few friends and one of our, uh, one of the leaders, I was, I think, a high school junior or senior, something like that. And we went boogie boarding, surfing, and I had a wetsuit on, and we had a like, ton of fun hanging out at the beach before the next day we would go spend time in Tijuana. And uh, what I didn't know is even though I had a full wetsuit on, uh, that my feet were getting incredibly sunburned because I failed to put sunscreen on my feet. So bad, in fact, that my feet began to swell up and it, it, I found it hard to walk. And so the rest of my time in, in Tijuana, in, in some degree, there was a, a, a level of discomfort. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. 
We went down into to Tijuana, into the slums, uh, introduced to people who lived in just terrible situations, the type of situations that maybe you've seen pictures of on TV, maybe you've had firsthand experiences of yourself. This, this was a community that lived next to uh, the, one of the local Tijuana dumps, and the people uh, basically survived by, by working through all the trash in the landfill and, and seeing whatever it is that they could find scrounge uh, to somehow help uh, their existence. And this is the place that had uh, no uh, running water, no power, and uh, we went down there as a, as a group and with a couple groups and, and we were, one of the primary things we were there to do was to bring some food assistance and then uh, to bathe on the little children because there was no running water and these kids would only get a bath once or twice a month when Pastor Vaughn would bring people down there and create these, um, these uh, mobile shower units. And, and so I was with a group um, and Pastor Vaughn was giving us instructions that we would bathe these children, give them uh, a clean pair of used clothed items, and allow them to pick a toy or a piece of candy of their choosing. As I look back, it, it was just really amazing, but for me, 16, 17 years old, I was just emotionally overwhelmed by the moment and, uh, and really just frankly uncomfortable. And so I used my sunburned feet as an excuse to kind of retreat to the background uh, to where nobody would notice and so then so that I would not have to be one of the people actually having to bathe these dirty children Uh, and so I kind of I ducked I I took the easy way out and found comfort doing something else I think handing out um, produce to to um, moms as they kind of came through as their kids were were being bathed and all these years later what I really remember most is the stories of those when we had returned stateside, those who shared stories about bathing those children. There was no stories about how gross it was. I didn't have the sense that any of them felt uncomfortable as I had, or at least they had persisted through their discomfort and worked to a place of just really feeling like they were doing something meaningful and significant. And I was left feeling like I had missed out on something really awesome that I would never have the opportunity from that moment to say, hey, that was part of my story because I chose to, to run and, and kind of slink off into the shadows. I also uh, led a group years later, uh, a group of high school students on a mission trip to Costa Rica where we would serve uh, the poor there. We would spend our days leading Uh, vacation Bible school experiences for the children. Some of us would uh, help with these various work projects that that needed to be done. And we worked really hard and had a a great experience. I I was really proud of of the leaders and that group of students on that trip. But as we walked back from that community, about a half mile walk to our, I'd call it maybe like a a three-star hotel on the beach facing the Pacific Ocean in Costa Rica, it dawned on me that we were making the, this transition away from the community we were serving. We were going to this, this motel on, on the beach that had warm running water, it had Wi-Fi, uh, and it had uh, air conditioning, these little air conditioning remotes that we could you know, set the temperature to whatever felt most comfortable. And I just thought, what a huge disconnect from us. You know, we're serving these people, our hearts are, are in it, but then we go and, and we go back to this, 
this different reality of those that we are serving. And so I gathered our leaders together and we decided that we were, that we were going to take the, the air conditioner remotes and that we would just live in the same temperature that those we were serving and that we would turn off the Wi-Fi. And, and then we went and we explained this to the students that we were leading saying, hey, this is an opportunity for us to live in solidarity with those that we are serving. And how do you think they responded? You're laughing because you know. It went over like a lead balloon. None of them wanted this. And it can be summed up by this, this comment from this one student who said, it is as if we're living in some type of third world country. <laughs> well, at least you got that much correct, right? Well, there's just something about uh, not wanting to be uncomfortable. And these are two stories of running and complaining from my experiences, and you have your own stories and your own experiences of something similar. But I believe this, negative stories don't always inspire. The story we read in Scripture is kind of a negative story. But they do have the power to confront us, to shake us, and that's a good thing. But I want to share with you a story of inspiration, a story that resonates and is birthed out of this community of faith. Miriam came, Miriam came home from the women's retreat uh, last weekend to a clean house. <laughs> and one of the first things that she shared with me was about something that uh, was shared by Elizabeth Burdett, who is here with her husband. And uh, Elizabeth and Britton have a, a, a passion for a ministry called Covenant House. Covenant House is a ministry that is focused on rescuing uh, teens and children from living on the streets here in Atlanta, and I believe this organization is in different places as well. Elizabeth and I uh, corresponded through email, and she shared with me uh, why it is Covenant House is so important to her. And so there's a couple bullet, and, uh, bullet points uh, of her words that I want to share with you. She started by saying this, Britton and I have been involved for about three years with Covenant House. He started volunteering there first and then encouraged me to get involved at well, as well. The young people served at Covenant House are truly inspiring despite their circumstances of homelessness, abuse, trafficking, abandonment. They are determined to create a better future for themselves. The staff at Covenant House often says that the least interesting thing about these kids is that they are homeless, but that they are bright and talented and have so much potential. Volunteering with Covenant House has been one of the most fulfilling experiences of my life. I am a firm believer that our children and young people are our most precious resources. And these are beautiful children of God who have experienced un unimaginable circumstances. They have enriched my life immeasurably and taught me to so much about resilience, forgiveness, and God's faithfulness. And she ended by sharing this. I'm very excited about the Women's United Sleepout on March 8th small shout out there, that she and Jane Wilkinson will be doing together. It's a night of sleeping outside on the street to raise money and awareness for kids like these who are served by Covenant House, or I should say need to be served by Covenant House. And here's what I can say about Elizabeth and Britton, is that they aren't running from God's invitation in this area, and there isn't one hint of complaining that comes from them. And I'm sure that the Burdettes would love to tell you more about their involvement. 
and even help you get involved as well. I'll transition by talking about uh, an author I like to uh, read, Reggie McNeil. He's what we call a missional theologian. He's a guy who's trying to help Christians and churches think about what it looks like to embrace this calling to be missional and to live missionally. And, he, and, his, and his book, one of his book, books are, are titled, Get Off Your Donkey. Yeah, I think that's good. Get off your donkey and help somebody help yourself. His book is a response to his interpretation of the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. And we could have easily, easily have used this chapter for all three weeks. We're not going to uh, divert into it. Again, it would be another passage of Scripture that you might want to engage over the next week or so. Um, but it is, a, it is a chapter that Reggie McNeil draws from. And he says that... that in, in his book, he says that there are three types of lives that we can choose when we are faced with the invitation to be missional followers of Christ. Three typical responses. The first response is this, that we can choose the just passing by life. Just going to pass by. This is the way of intentional ignorance where we choose not to know or understand the needs that are presented around us. This starts as ignoring the invitations and opportunities and grows into willful choices of running from God. He said we can also choose the help myself life. And this is choosing comfort over care, desire over discipleship, my needs over the needs of others, complaining over compassion, and running away from relationships with others rather than running to them. And then there's a third choice. This is the one he and I recommend. Or you can choose the meaningful life. This life is hard to describe because it looks different for everyone who faces, in, who faces into it. It is better lived and experienced to determine if it has more to offer than choices one or two. I know this way to be less predictable, more mysterious, often difficult, much more faith is required to live into it. It is probably uh, filled with more joy than fun, not to say that fun can't be a part of this way of life too. It is deep water, but it is a life full of depth. I also think that this is the place where Jesus can be found hanging out if you're interested in finding him. And so I want to um, share another story, but rather than share it myself uh, at this point in the sermon where it's good to offer illustration, someone who I believe embodies for us this third way of living is uh, our very own Maria Firevari. Maria, would you please come on up? Uh, Ryan's going to set up a couple chairs for us. Uh, and as Maria comes up, you should know that Maria and I have known each other for 22 plus years. Um, often we would, I'd be greeted by a big hug when we get back <laughs> from youth group trips. Shondor, her son, uh, who uh, was a student in our ministry at the time, Ryan and I were leaders. And, uh, and I have witnessed Maria's life 
witnessed this number three type of life. And, and not only have I witnessed it, but uh, all of us on the missions team has seen it as well. And so we decided that we wanted to invite Maria to come on up and allow us, thank you, Jonathan, uh, to hear from her. I have a few questions. I asked her if she wanted the questions in advance, and she said no. She's just going to speak from her heart. And so, Maria, so good to have you here. Good to be here. Good to have you here. Glad we have that established. All right. Uh, so, when we talk about mission, outreach, and service, just from your heart and your passion, when you hear those terms, how does that resonate for you? I, for me, they kind of all tie together. They're very well linked in my life. Um, and uh, I believe sometimes we really get hung up, especially with the word mission. Um, that and also something to remember for me about missions is it's not a competition ever about what one person is doing versus, you know, what am I doing compared to what, what you're doing. So I think that those are really important things to hold on to. One of the things that where you give time and energy is uh, a heart for the homeless. Uh, why do you care and what motivates you to give time and energy and compassion to show compassion towards the homeless? I think it started with my parents. Um, I was really blessed to have, first of all, I was not raised with any sort of faith or religion in my family at all. It came, came to be for me when Chandra was in fifth grade. But um, both my parents were extremely giving. And, and I was able to witness that in their daily lives. And um, I think with it, when it comes to the homeless, I, I used to work, when I was in elementary school, I started running a paper route. And um, I started out with one route and ended up with six. So I would work every morning for about three hours before I went to school. And I would come home after school and work until after dinner time. Um, and that was basically out of need. My, my parents were both really sick. When I was in third and fourth grade, they became very ill and food needed. I had four siblings and food needed to be put on the table and, and things needed to be taken care of. But I was really blessed during that time. There's this place, this park called Lytton Park and I'd pass it, it's on Emerson in downtown Palo Alto. And I would pass it in the morning, every morning, seven days a week delivering the papers in six days a week in the afternoons, because I didn't have to deliver on Sunday. Um, and I'd see the same people. They'd be there at five in the morning, at four in the morning, and they'd be there at seven o'clock at night. And um, I just started, it became a place where I could sit and rest from my, you know, my deliveries and started building relationships with these people. And at the beginning, I can't tell you if I was scared or not, because I don't remember that part of it at all. I, I just remember sitting down and talking to these people. And um, when I think of homelessness, I, I think to some degree, each one of us in this room, we're all homeless. Until we're called home to be in heaven with God, we are all homeless. We're just there in different states. Some of us have a bigger house, some of us have you know, a nicer car, but, but really we're not home yet. And, most of these people that you meet are not there on their own choosings. They, they're there because of circumstances. And we all know people, and, and blessed are we that we are not on that scale where we're just about there. But 
plenty of us are, plenty, plenty of people we know, and probably more than not, are on that scale where they're one pay, paycheck away. Kay's here visiting, and, and she knows that. She works, she's called God's Call or to the homeless community in Noonan. And um, so we know that, that there's so many people that are just one step away, and there's so much we can do to end that and to avoid that. So speaking of what we can do, I know one thing that you have are these homeless bags. Tell us what this homeless bag is. I don't know if it's your, if you have a patent on it or not, but to <laughs> describe for us what, what is a, a homeless bag and how you use them. Well, basically it's an icebreaker. So I carry them um, in my car and I use them as a means to stop and talk to somebody who might need what's in them. And, and what's in them? Um, so homeless people are some of the generous, most generous people you'll meet. They're always willing to give you what they, little they do have. So there's stuff in there to share, like a big loaf of bread with peanut butter and jelly that they can share with their friends. But then there's things that, that they need. Uh, if you want to give them gold, you give them six pairs of socks. I mean, it's amazing how happy it makes them. There's things like razors and body wipes so they can get clean and dry shampoo. Um, there's brushes and nail clippers um, and just anything that you can see in the dollar store that, that um, might be a service. The beauty about these homeless bags is they're really, you might not feel comfortable getting out there and doing that, but it's really an activity that you can do with your family or with your children that they can get behind and learn to purchase. I mean, just to sit in the dollar store with Winston, my grandson, and say, if you didn't have a place to shower, what do you think you'd need in this aisle? You know, and it's a teaching tool. But most importantly, it is a tool that, that, that I use to be able to say, hey, you know, I've got this bag in my car that I might have some stuff. Are you interested? I'd love to, love to give it, always asking permission. Love to be able to give that to you and see if it can be a blessing for you. You weren't supposed to reference Winston yet. Oh, sorry, sorry, Winston. Uh, can you cue the picture? Okay, now we can talk about Winston. Do you see that picture? Oh, yeah. Tell us about that picture. So, uh, in December, Winston turned five. And prior- Your grandson. My grandson, yeah, yeah y'all know that. My pride and joy. Um, he turned five and before his birthday, I just sat with him and, as I often do, and asked him how many toys he had. And his answer was, well, between your house and my house, I have a thousand toys. So I'm sure he was counting every Lego individually. And I said, that's a lot of toys. I said, your birthday's coming up um, and you're about to ready to invite all your friends over. I said, do you need more toys? And he said, he thought about it and he said, no. And I asked him what he thought was more important, toys to play with or food to eat. And he just immediately didn't even think twice. He said, well, you need food, and if you don't have water, you're going to die. <laughs> right, Winston. And I said, so what if you were you know, able to invite your friends over, and instead of asking for presents, you asked for food or ways to provide food by getting gift certificates to, or gift cards, whatever they're called, to the stores. And he thought that was a great idea, and he said, with a caveat that he was turning five, so he should get five presents. And I said, I think mommy and daddy and me, we can handle that, those five presents. And uh, 
So all his friends um, came to his birthday party with gift cards, a couple of bags of food, but mostly just gift cards. And I forget the numbers, but I think it was $230 in, in gift cards that Winston had to support CEASE and CAC in, in their emptying food bank. And I said to him, we could have ended it there, but I said, Winston, sorry. Um, we can do something called social media. And I'm the least you know, knowledgeable about this stuff, but I said, we could start this thing, GoFundMe, and I showed him a go couple GoFundMe's. And basically, we can ask people to help celebrate your birthday. And so we did that, and he raised another 200 and something over what he had raised with the gift cards. And so when that was over, I said, there's one more step we can take. We can go to the grocery stores. We can ask them to participate. So we did, and all in all, he ended up with 820 or $840 to go shopping. And that's him in the meat department emptying the, emptying the chicken. And um, we took that food down to uh, CAC, where he diligently unloaded it onto these carts and pushed it in to CAC. Bonnie, are you here? She was here. Um, to, into Bonnie, where she received him and uh, unloaded the food. And after talking to him, you know, he stated, you know, this was good, but it was a lot of work. <laughs> but the point with that is, is that we're examples to our children. And if we raise them from this age, knowing and what they are capable of doing for others and with a desire and a heart for that, it's going to be second nature when they grow up. It's not going to be something that we have to, they have to think about. It's going to be something that they automatically do because they've spent their whole lives witnessing it and participating in it. Um, Long answer, sorry. No, that is great. And when, when Mario refers to the CAC, it's the Community Outreach Center here in Sandy Springs one of our uh, ministry partners here at our church. Um, would you, I'm not sure, and I, I, I hate doing this, but I told the missions team I would do this. I would risk seeing if anybody in the congregation has a question for you. Okay, should we do that? Sure. Sure. I don't want to. All right, let's do it. All right. It's forcing you. As you hear Maria share her story, is there a question that you would have uh, or that you would like to ask of her? We, over the... Oh, microphone coming. How do you get your kids to what? I, I didn't hear. She has uh, twin uh, girls, seven-year-olds, and how would they hand them out in a way that you felt comfortable with? Yeah, that's a really good question. And so, as I mentioned, Winston, I've always talked to him about it, but I don't ever do that with him in the car. I, I, I never put him at risk for anything, and you really don't know what you're, what you're entering into unless it's an established relationship. If it's an established relationship, then I feel okay with it. But at that age, I think there's really a lot of other ways to get them involved where you don't need to put them at risk. And it would be simply like, going to Costco and buying a, a set of paper placemats and having your seven-year-olds decorate them and then take them to a soup kitchen and say, you know, we'd like to put these out on the tables with 
little messages for them, or even you know packing bags like we do here, or shopping for CAC and letting them letting them go to the grocery store and saying, if you didn't have anything to eat and you have to you have to stay strong out in the street, what kind of food do you think they need? When when, when I took Winston, he only bought two things, and one was cinnamon rolls and candy canes. That's solid. For the rest was all extremely healthy food. And that's from coming to, what is, he, what is that person gonna need to stay strong on the streets? So there's a lot of ways to teach your kids without putting them in danger. We'll take one more if anybody has a question for Mario. Good, only one. <laughs> Sometimes you guys have really strange questions, so uh, it's easier to move on. Uh, I'm gonna ask you one last question and you don't have to answer. Are you somehow superhuman and ex extraordinarily remarkable? Absolutely not. Not. And, and Mario really isn't. But what I wrote in my notes here is what I have seen in Mario's lives and others is simply a, a woman who is available. And I am so appreciative of that. Before she leaves, we didn't even get into her heart for Costa Rica and rescuing uh, young girls out of human trafficking. Uh, that will have to be to be continued, but uh, Mario continues to be a ministry partner of our church. We're supporting what she's doing down there. Maria, I'm sure, will be available after the service. Come give her a hug, talk to her, but be careful. She'll get you doing stuff. It's pretty hey, Joe, awesome. Can I just say one more thing? Oh, yeah. You yeah, can. thanks. <laughs> this was not rehearsed. Um, <laughs> When thinking about missions and thinking that it's overwhelming and daunting, if you can remember that there's people like Kay who's doing her service and Cease who's doing CSE and myself who really have a calling to do the one-on-one, -on -one, the, the, you know, the cutthroat work, we can't do it without each and every one of you. In other words, God provides us different skill sets and, and different talents and different treasures. And, I can't do what I do, and that's been some of the learning process that I've really been going through, is to, you know, why there's been this break, and why it's, but watching God at work coming to fruition and providing the right and appropriate people. There's not one of you that's sitting in these pews right now that can't help, help us, whether it's financial or saying, hey, I can, I can help you with that uh, PowerPoint, because I don't know how to do it, and I gotta get it done. Um, to, um, you know, I've got some legal advice or whatever. You can all participate. And I think that that's the part we get lost in when we're thinking about missions, is we've got to do something big. But supporting the people that are doing things, all, we, we need all of your support. And I think that that's really important. Hey, let's thank Maria for her time with us. This is a sermon, so it has to have a concluding thought and a prayer, so I'll take us there. But what I love about Maria is that uh, she has chosen a life of refusing uh, not to run or not to duck from the invitation to care for those in need. Um, she did not describe any isolated events or experiences, but rather she talked about her life, her way of seeing the world and how she engages with God and God's mission for her life. So let me turn it to us. A rhetorical question, the what-if question. What if a Christian chose not to run or complain, but rather to embrace 
the invitation to a missional way of living. What if a small group of Christians who regularly meet together chose to embrace this invitation to a missional life together and then gathered regularly to encourage, affirm, and pray for one another in that desire? What if a family church in a city like Sandy Springs chose to embrace the invitation to a missional way of being and expressing the love of Jesus? Would this one Christian, would this one small group, or this community of Christians have anything to offer or share with the world? What if? Let's pray together. Father, we um, need the word and the story from Jonah to confront us. Lord, we are grateful for uh, Elizabeth and Britain and their, their love for Covenant House. Thank you for uh, the words that we receive from Maria, and to know that they are just two example, examples of, of many who are trying to live this missional way. But for those of us who, um, like me, who often want to run, to duck, find reasons to complain, would you do a work in us that doesn't have to end in the belly of a big fish, but rather that we would um, take some type of step, as Maria suggested, and that then when we see you do something uh, incredible, rather than complain, that we would testify to your goodness. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.